Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. How is the content of Ruth reflected in the teaching of St. Paul and in the Gospel narratives? Why, in Ruth, does it matter who is whose relative and who is connected to whom? Why do Richard and I make such a big deal out of biblical names? Why does Ruth prostrate herself in front of a man? Isn't she the one making all the big sacrifices to support Naomi? Shouldn't everyone bow to her? Who is this mighty Boaz anyway? Is power always evil? Only for those whose mind can't get past the person to see God's function in operation. Richard and I discuss Ruth chapter 2. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 90 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We move on today to chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. We have a Moabitess in the land of Judah. Her husband died. Her mother-in-law's husband died. They have no source of income, not even for the widow of Judah, let alone the Moabitess. One of the tragedies of having your sons die is that you didn't have anyone who could inherit the substance of their father. Their father died and the children died. There's no one to pass the inheritance along to. And so this puts Naomi in a pickle. And the other side of this is that Ruth is coming from Moab. So she has no rights to the land of Judah because she's a foreigner. She has no family there. The only inheritance she might have would be her father's or her husband's. And since she has no father, she abandoned him. She has no husband. He died. She has no rights to anything. And so the way that one would gain a living would be from land, but she has no rights to any land. And so I want our listeners to understand that the story is focusing on this pickle that Naomi and Ruth are in, because we don't really hear it in that way. We think, oh, this person died, that's too bad, you know, but at least the person can go and access their bank account. There's no bank account. There's just the land, but the land is in limbo right now. Nobody owns it. And please don't hear this story in terms of modern ideological dysfunction surrounding gender. We know that it's unjust from the perspective of Western civil society that when a woman dies, she doesn't have access to wealth. She's completely at the mercy of the neighborhood, so to speak. We know that from our perspective, this is unjust. But that doesn't make this story about civil rights or women's rights. Because this story is actually pressuring the addressee to feel this burden. It's not about whether or not women should be in this situation. It's about whether anyone should ever be abandoned in a land governed by God's instruction. The other side is important because one can say, oh, these poor women, they have no agency, they don't get to decide, they don't get to have money. And I think that the opposite is true because already we talked in chapter one about how Ruth took it upon herself to take care of the widow, her mother-in-law. So 
even without the agency that maybe a modern Western woman might have, she still found agency so that she could take care of somebody else. And I think this is central, that no matter what state she's in, a foreigner with no substance whatsoever, she says to her mother-in-law, I'm sticking with you and I'm taking care of you, no matter what. Now, in the United States, we would have similar problems. I mean, let's say that somebody owns a house and they die and their children die. Who owns the house? That would be a big legal problem here in the U.S. too, and this house would sit abandoned for a while. The only thing is that house isn't a source of income for somebody, whereas a piece of land in the ancient world was a source of income. So you have a source of income just lying fallow. What's going to come of it? Blessed is our God who brings forth bread from the earth. It's a big thing. You're in the house of bread in Hebrew, Beit Lehem. In Arabic, it's meat, but in Hebrew, it's the house of bread. The land brings forth bread. The land belongs to God. If you aren't able to share in a portion of the land, you are not sharing in the bread of the land and the milk and the honey and the fat and you know all of these expressions of the fruit that is produced by the earth. So it's a very serious matter. It's not about possession in the modern sense where you have something of monetary value that you claim and you can sell and you want to get interest on it. You actually are connected to the land in a very personal way. The bread comes directly from there. Your food is produced directly from those goods that come from the land. It's like scientists who talk about how our immunity has been crippled because we wear shoes, because we don't put our feet in the dirt. Even though we're talking about civilization and the city of Bethlehem in the land of Judah, these are still people who planted their feet in the ground. They were very much connected to the life and the cycles of the land in an agrarian setting. It's always important to remember that as we work through these texts. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, once again, we have the introduction of another name. It looks like it's from the root Azaz, which means strength. Like in Arabic, Aziz, which means mighty or strong. The Be that comes before it means by, by means of. So you can understand this word as meaning Be'oz, or Boaz, meaning with strength. <laughs> so it's a story about how he is using his substance Boaz is using his substance in order to benefit a widow in his community. But what's interesting about the usage of this word, azaz, especially in the Psalms, and I'm thinking specifically of Psalm 8, it references God's strength. So we're talking about the land which belongs to God. And this is implicit in Scripture, even if it's not stated explicitly here in chapter 2. And we're talking about his kinsmen, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. So his reference is God. And now you have another actor who's closely related to him, whose name means strength. But if you do a word study in the Psalter, it perhaps is pertaining to the strength of God, not the strength of the character in the story, which sets him up potentially as a positive function in the narrative. We'll have to see how this plays out. Right. I want to also comment on another word that we have here translated as a kinsman. 
This comes from the word yada, which means to know. So it's like a known person. If I had to translate it more directly, it'd be like an acquaintance. Naomi had an acquaintance of her husband, a man of great wealth. It's hard to know exactly like what the relationship is just from this verse. We'll find out more later, but I don't want it to be confused. It doesn't necessarily mean right off the bat that there are blood relatives. Depending on what that relationship turns out to be, it could have significant impact on the passing on or access to the inheritance of Elimelech. Yeah. That's why it's very important. So, that, so it kind of sets up a tension in this first verse, that there's this person and who knew her husband. And Now, we have to understand a Middle Eastern context because this doesn't happen in a Western context. When I was in Morocco, there was someone I was looking for, and I found somebody who knew who he was, and he showed me, and he drove me over there. We, we spent some time together. They were laughing stuff and telling stories. And afterwards, the one left, and I asked, oh, how do you guys know each other? And he said, I think he's a relative or something. Nobody talks like this in the West. So we have to understand in the Middle Eastern context, understanding these relatives, they're an important part of life, but they aren't the same kind of relatives versus friends. There's a much more porous border between friends and relatives in the ancient world. And there's a different dynamic also because in the modern West, because we're very individualistic, we think about what I have and I own and I possess, what you have and you own and you do in your life and my life. But even in the modern Middle East, when you're networking, Arabs are extremely networked. If you find out someone that you're networked with has come into good fortune, it's not presumptuous to assume that that fortune would be shared with you. You know, so hearing that there's a potential relative of your deceased husband, it's a sign of hope at the opening of the chapter. In this country, people would be very covetous if they were to come into a large amount of money but as I say, in Semitic cultures, I mean, they have their own problem with greed and covetousness, obviously, but it's socially expected that people would share. Now, sometimes that can come off as entitlement, but very often it functions as community and fellowship and mutuality. I mean, these are the ancient mechanisms with deep, deep cultural roots, in my view, heavily influenced by the biblical tradition in the Near East where the society, in the absence of civil laws that impose certain safety mechanisms for protected classes, it was just assumed that people would be responsible. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Ruth came to the land because she needed to take care of her mother-in-law. Mm -hmm. And she said, hey, I'm going to go find some people who are out gleaning and I'm going to go and get us some food because, you know, she's not, they don't have money. There's no shop. So you go and you find a field where people are working and she says, I'll go and maybe someone will be nice to me and let me go and glean, you know, whatever's left over after they're done harvesting in the field. And that way we'll have some food. So two women, all they have is each other in a society of men and they're hoping for the best, essentially. And I mean, it's so strong to realize that Ruth left her family and her land in order to live this life where I'll go and see if someone is nice and will let me go and take some of their grain. It's a beautiful love story. And not just in the romantic sense about Ruth and Boaz going through courtship 
or the tragedy of the loss of you know, Eli Melech and so forth. It's about the love of a mother and a daughter, the bonds that break down the borders between societies. It's beautiful. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family. So now we know for a fact he's of the same family. As addressees of the story, we now understand that this truly is a sign of hope for these two women. It's like winning the lottery, essentially, in the ancient world, that something like this would happen. But we know this. We have to wait to see if Ruth finds out or how she might find out. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. So he comes from the land of bread with the blessings of the Lord, wielding or bearing the strength of the Lord in his name. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And it's important here that we are not referring to her in the story as Mara. We are referring to her as Naomi, which means even though she at the end of chapter 1 was in mourning, she's still referred to by the writer as the one who is pleasant, whose name means pleasantness but could also pertain to grace which could say something about what's happening here. This is grace upon grace. Just as Naomi was blessed with the grace of Ruth's love and commitment, it could also imply that now Naomi will encounter grace again in the generosity of God towards her husband's household in the person of Boaz. And she said, "'Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves.'" Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. So he's saying, look, I want you to stay with me, to stay with my group, with my servants. And he's protecting her. I mean, having a lone woman out in the fields where it's a man's world and there's nobody around, it's a very vulnerable spot for her. She's vulnerable as a Moabitess because if the servants know that she's a Moabitess, they know there's no one to protect her. There is no clan to protect her if she's treated unjustly. So she's in a very vulnerable position. So what Boaz does is he surrounds her with his maids, he protects her with women in order to make sure that she stays safe, but also says, stay here and you'll be able to be taken care of. Think of it this way. In the modern West, you know you're okay psychologically if you get a good job with a great company. In the ancient Near East, you know you're okay if you have family. And to a large extent, that's still true in the old world. The family is the safety net. So when you don't have family, it's a big issue. Not only that, she came in order to be the safety net for somebody else. So not only is she vulnerable, but when she is vulnerable, Naomi is also vulnerable. Right. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. This could mean not to bother you. It could mean also that no one's allowed to claim any sexual rights. No one's allowed to touch you sexually or to disturb you in any way. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw, meaning you get to drink from the same water as everybody else as though you're one of us. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, 
why have I found favor? So again, I mentioned earlier this issue of grace. It's a different Hebrew word here. It's not nermet. It's hen. This word commonly appears in this phrase, to find favor in somebody's sight. And you get it in the Psalms where the psalmist is addressing God to find favor in someone's sight. It means that they show favor to you. So you say, why have you shown favor to me? It's a way of humbling yourself before someone who has power over you in a situation. You're in a position of helplessness and someone is showing favor. Someone is going to get you out of your situation simply by fiat. And this is exactly the power that Boaz is exercising, which reflects the function of the biblical God. Dr. Nikolai Roddy pointed out that in the Old Testament, sometimes characters who you see as just human beings in the story take on the function of the biblical God, which is why I think the name Boaz is very important. Because if it does in fact reflect the might of God, that now God is showing favor. Although it is odd to see in the Old Testament a rich man who seems to be a good guy. It's much easier for Boaz to be a nice guy than it is for Ruth to be a nice lady. And Ruth has sacrificed so much for her family, her in-laws, that Boaz is never even going to be able to sacrifice. When Jesus talks about the widow's mites, she gave out of her poverty. Ruth had nothing and offered it all to her mother-in-law, whereas all Boaz has to offer is, you know, the scraps left over after his servants have gleaned. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. He's speaking in judgment. It has the feel of a scene where someone has suffered much, and suddenly the king appears, and simply, again, by fiat says, You know what? You're not invisible. Your plight has not gone unnoticed. And now I'm going to relieve you of your burden. It's justice. It's the most beautiful kind of justice. It's like someone who's been suffering and struggling and no one sees and no one appreciates and no one acknowledges. And then someone with power acknowledges. Again, in a Western context, we tend to think of power in ontological terms, that power is evil. But this isn't what St. Paul is saying. He's saying power wielded by human beings is evil. Power wielded by God's commandment is beautiful. And Boaz is following the commandment precisely because the reason why in Deuteronomy it says you should leave the corners of your field is for the widow and the orphan. And who do we have here? We have Ruth. What is Ruth? She's a widow and an orphan. Both. So Boaz is following the commandments and this is what's significant and that's why the benediction that he gives in the next verse, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. This proves my exegesis because he himself is explicitly saying, it's not I, Boaz, who is blessing you. It's the Lord, implicitly, whose instruction guides my step and whose Torah is my might. It is he who is coming now to save you. I'm just his vessel doing his command. And Ruth is the obedient one to the Lord's teaching, seeking protection under the Lord. So when she fell prostrate in front of Boaz, it was no joke. It's the function of the prostitute or the thief in the New Testament. It's the same function. You fall prostrate before Jesus simply because you have no other choice, not because you're better than the Pharisee. The only difference between a Pharisee and the prostitute is that the Pharisee has options. The prostitute doesn't. The prostitute didn't choose to be a Moabitess. 
She just is a Moabitess. And this is what makes Ruth so beautiful. She doesn't hesitate. She knows that she owes everything to this character in the story. She knows she's fully dependent. She doesn't say, should I bow down before a man? He should give me. She never claims she was faithful to anybody or that she was faithful to the household of Elimelech or any of this nonsense. She just falls prostrate. Beautiful. Classic. You can see how, once again, the Paulian school draws on these paradigms and these archetypes all over the place. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Notice, you are showing me grace. You are inviting me into the household and treating me as though I'm a member of the household even though I'm not a member of the household. This is exactly the position the gospel wants to put you in. And that's why the gospel is always rejected by the faithful, those who call themselves faithful, because they believe they're on the inside with Boaz. But the gospel can only function when you put yourself on the outside with Ruth, because then you realize the only reason you're here is because God saw you in your misery and showed mercy on you. Such a powerful story. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. So she's sharing in the table fellowship within his household. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. There's dignity that she is owed. Boaz is really being tough on his servants, saying, You're to treat her well at every turn. Like, he uses his authority to make sure that the people of his household treat her correctly, and uses his household to make sure that she, Ruth, is able to participate fully. Which means that his household which is the paradigm for Israel and therefore the paradigm for the church, is not for the enjoyment of the household. This is the anti-ecclesiology of Ruth. Mm. The church is not your church for your enjoyment or for your safety or comfort. You are one of the slaves in the household, and the master wants you as a slave who's already here to look after the outsider who's on the edges of the community. Once again, it's the insider-outsider paradigm. It's a big deal. And the leftover of the field are the wages from the Lord to this person. And the first gospel I read as a priest after I was ordained, the first liturgy I served, was the beautiful story where the woman told Jesus, even the dogs, sir, eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. We're talking about Ruth. That's exactly what's happening here. Ruth is putting herself in the position of the Gentile dog. And God is lifting her up. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. It's reminiscent of the corner of the field in the Torah, the beard, so to speak. You were saying this earlier that the extra that we would save for those in need, we're going to make sure that she has access to it. And if you let a little bit extra fall on the ground while you're reaping, that's fine too. It's grace upon grace. So the pleasantness of Naomi and the favor of the might of the Lord in Boaz is being poured on hyperbolically in chapter 2. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epa of barley. That's just a measurement. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, 
She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. So everyone got to eat and there was still left over. Again, this kind of language appears in the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes in the New Testament. There's always extra. When the Lord is the one providing the bread, there's always enough to go around and then some. So why are the people of Judah coveting the bread? Why covet it? Why not just give it away? The only reason you would have to covet it is if the people in your place do not follow Torah like Boaz does. When people follow Torah, there are no poor people. Everyone is fed and everyone is satisfied. When somebody does not follow Torah, that's when you have poor people. And that's where you have hungry people. A Westerner would look at the presumption of a Near Easterner that a relative's fortune or a neighbor's fortune is their fortune. We would look at that as entitlement. But in its proper context, it's understood as blessing and hope and fellowship because this is what the Torah demands, that you share. Why shouldn't my good fortune be your good fortune? Why would we even discuss it? It should be an impulse. You win the lottery, everybody wins the lottery. This is lost, and this is why we're going to keep having school shootings every week because no one is looking to see the needs of their neighbor. And so a kid who's feeling lonely or sad who in a normal healthy society would have people look in on him and talk to him and encourage him, is left alone in his room to play with the internet and look up all these weird ideologies and get more angry and feel more lonely and sad. Or maybe he's just evil and disturbed, not lonely and sad, but still no one's checking in on him because everyone's an individual. And then we're shocked that everything's falling apart. So it's important for people to contextualize even our current struggles in this culture and contrast how we relate to each other or don't relate to each other with the abundant generosity that is presented and proposed by this story. A story that has had huge impact on the way people have lived for centuries. Her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead, meaning that the generosity of the Lord honors not only Elimelech, but his sons who passed on because God is adopting the family and God is now the husband and the provider in the family. And this is an honor to those who have gone before these women. Again, Naomi said to her, and this is the beautiful part where you win the lottery, right? It's like that movie about this Irish town where somebody wins the lottery and they passed away, but the whole town conspires to get the money and then share it. You know, the movie Waking Ned Divine, that's biblical. It's even more beautiful that the man who won the lottery is dead. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. It's like saying, can you believe it? The man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. So the word for relative, the first one, is karov, which means someone close. So before we knew it was somebody who was known, but now we find out it's someone who's close. But then when he says he is one of our closest relatives, this is more interesting because this comes from the root ga'al. So he's a goel. A ga'al is someone who redeems somebody. Hmm. So what she is saying is this person is capable of redeeming the property and therefore receiving the inheritance. So Naomi is happy that Ruth is getting along well with someone who's not just known, but who's a close person, meaning a relative, and so is legally able to inherit Elimelech's estate. And if Elimelech's estate goes to Boaz, 
fine, at least somebody gets to use it. But if Ruth is in that household, then Ruth gets to benefit from it in addition. So it's double. Not only is Elimelech redeemed so that someone then can inherit his substance, Ruth can also benefit from it, and by extension, then Naomi too. So it can be the happy ending they were looking for. It would be interesting in another podcast to explore the potential connection between the term exagorazo in Galatians vis-a-vis the Septuagint to this example of redeem. In Galatians, it refers to obviously redeeming from slavery. But it's something similar here because these women are effectively slaves because they have no rights. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Her honor is still being protected. Naomi says, good, stay with the maids. As long as you're with the maids, the men are not going to mess with you because she's very vulnerable. I mean, as a foreigner, as an outsider, everybody knows, you know, Boaz asked the first random person, who's that lady? And they oh, yeah, don't you know Naomi brought back this Moabitess? And so everyone knew. So, you know, stay in this field where you're being protected. Don't go wander into another field because who knows what could happen to you. And what's more important is that Ruth still remained part of Naomi's household, a household of two. And that meant that whatever she was being able to glean, she was able to provide for her mother-in-law. So what Ruth said she would do by leaving her family and staying with her mother-in-law, she continued to do. And her good fortune, like you were saying with the lottery ticket, is Naomi's good fortune. It's beautiful. And the best part is you can't even say that it's a woman in distress being rescued by a man because it's the Lord who's rescuing Ruth and Naomi. Thanks very much, Dr. Bente. Thank you, Father. Looking forward to chapter three next week. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.